You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Here's a different sounding word. Einstellung. Should be on the screen. But if you're going to say it, you should say it with the appropriate accent. Einstellung. German word means attitude. The Einstellung effect is a term coined after a scientific social experiment conducted in the 40s. And since that time, the Einstellung effect is known for the development of a mechanized state of mind, a programmed mind. The study took a handful of people and gave them a series of different sized water jugs and gave them a measurement problem to solve. Figure out how from X jugs to fill out Y volumes of water. Something to that effect. I can already see some of you problem solvers in the room licking your lips. People who like math homework and puzzles and test taking. Well, in the experiment, after the test subjects had figured it out, and they continued to successfully solve variations of the same problem, the sneaky scientist introduced a new, different problem in where there were better ways, even easier ways available to solve the problem. But what they found that instead of using the new, better, easier ways, the test subjects continue to go about solving the problem in the old way. Their prior successes and ways of doing things had blinded them to the better way. They had become programmed by the experiences that they knew. Now, we all get this, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Do what works. But the issue arises when we encounter a problem that requires a completely different solution that we are unaccustomed to. And this is what our test subject in our Luke text runs into this morning. His name is the rich young ruler. And he has a problem, and this is the problem. How do I inherit eternal life? It's a weighty problem, one that most of us don't even realize we have or that most don't realize they have, and it's the central business of the church. How does someone get into heaven? How does someone come into eternal life? Now, in the Einstein effect test, there was one thing that the scientists could do that would break the old ways and get the test subjects to achieve the better way. They could achieve the right or most successful solution. There was a way to snap them out of this Einstellung effect, and it was simply this. When they put the new problem in front of them, the scientists put the new test in front of them, right before they set it down, they said, don't be blind. That was it. Those simple words. That was enough to get the test subjects to see that there was a ruse. Those words, don't be blind, created sight. The veil was lifted. They were snapped from their programming to approach things in a new way. And this is what the gospel does. This is what an encounter with Christ is like. The word of God is the great don't be blind warning that is meant to wake us up from the Einstellung effect. The problem is inheriting eternal life, the right kind, and the question is, what will we do about solving that problem, in particular, when the answer is standing in front of us? How do we respond to Christ, who represents a completely different approach? 
So that's what we're doing this morning. The text, the words will be on the screen, so it will help us follow along. First verse we come to is verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We don't need a ton of backdrop to this. We've been preaching for some time now, 18 chapters in Luke. Jesus is traveling, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. And a man with authority and money runs up to him and gets on the ground in front of him. Now what's interesting is this same exact story is placed in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark gives us a detail that Luke here does not. He says that the man ran up and knelt down on the ground and got in front of Jesus. So that helps us to see the man's urgency. So this is a man who, although is in charge and is rich, is burning with a question, a problem to solve, that sends him running and sliding in front of this traveling teacher, Rabbi Jesus. He has earthly prestige and money, but what he wants is eternal life. Now at this point, there's a lot to like about this guy simply because he's asking the right question. There's an old saying that says, put first things first. Does anyone know what the first ingredient of rabbit stew is? Rabbit. Yes, I'll never forget the first time I heard that. You don't need salt, you don't need pepper, you don't need potatoes, you need rabbit. This is a biblical concept. Jesus said this with different words. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and at the end of his 80 years lose his soul? Losing your soul forever outweighs the 80 years of wealth. The end result spoils the initial fun. This is an immutable rule. So at least this guy gets it to this point. Yeah, he has rule. Yeah, he has money. But what he knows he needs is eternal life because that's what actually matters. So we can respect him for being someone who knows what matters most, but we will find out that there is something in his way. So we're working through the text, verse 19. Jesus' first response back to the man is a question. And it's a powerful and impactful question, but it almost seems like an aside, but not really. Jesus responds with this, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, a lot has been made of this statement, so we want to deal with it. Was Jesus saying he wasn't good? Was he saying that he's a sinner like you and me? Was Jesus here making it abundantly clear that he isn't God And so for a couple hundred years, we've gotten it wrong, and we need to redo the calendar. No, calendar's fine. Jesus is not here saying that he's a regular guy. Quite the opposite, in fact. The whole Gospel of Luke is dedicated to showing that at the end, Jesus dies and comes back from life. Jesus is not a regular guy. So why does Jesus respond in this way? We can understand what Jesus is doing here inside of the context of who he's talking to. He's talking to a guy who incorrectly sees him as merely a good teacher. And Jesus is not mere anything. Jesus is God. So Jesus is correcting this man from throwing around a word of which he does not understand and pointing out that he is talking to someone of which he does not really know. So scripture is what is supposed to shape our understanding of what good actually means, right? If scripture was shaping this man's understanding, he could have relied on Psalm 53. We'll put the words up. It says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. 
They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So this man and we ourselves are prone to judge goodness by our own understanding of how we measure up to a set of rules. Either external, external rules such as God's law as we understand it or the laws of the state or the laws of popular opinion or inter internal rules, our own code of ethics, what we think seems right, what we think seems wrong. But scripture doesn't do that. Scripture says that when God looks down, when God searches out man, he sees that none are good, not even one. Well, this is a big problem. And it has an impact on how one achieves eternal life. And this man does not understand it. Most people, most of even us, don't understand this. So when this guy runs up to Jesus with his incorrect thinking of, you're good, I'm good, we're both good, how do we inherit eternal life? Jesus starts to rock this guy's world with bringing to light who he is actually talking to. He isn't talking to the good teacher in this guy's sense because there aren't any. He's talking to the good God. Jesus is capital G good. Now if he had an idea, he wouldn't have asked this question. He would have simply just begged to follow Jesus, which is what we will see is the one thing he can't actually do. Now what Jesus starts to do next is, after this tricky comment about goodness, is he first meets the guy on his own ground, which is he meets him with the law. He asks what he can do. He wants to know what can I do to inherit eternal life. Emphasis on do. What can I do? Give me a list. So Jesus gives him some of the Ten Commandments. Verse 20. Now when the man responds, all of these I've kept from my youth. I've kept all these commandments from my youth. Jesus could have responded back with, no, you have not. And he would have been right to do so. But when you do that, people just tend to argue. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark says at this point that Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. It actually says that he loved him. And because he loves him, he's going to expose what this man wants the most. So verses 22, verse 22 says, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, give it away to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. There's a scene in one of the Harry Potters in, in where Dumbledore and Harry are looking for an object. And they travel far, and they find the object, and the object is in the bottom of a bowl, filled to the brim with liquid. They need to have the object. It's important. It's a magical universe, so they can't just stick in their hand in there and get it. They can't use the nearby shell and scoop out the liquid and then get the object. None of that will work. None of these easy solutions will suffice if they want the object. To, Dumbledore, to Dumbledore's horror, he realizes that if he wants to get down to the bottom of the object, he has to drink down the liquid, and the liquid is poison. Not a poison that will kill his body forever, because then that wouldn't be worth it. It's a poison that will momentarily drive him mad. It's a poison that will make him have to deal with and endure great sorrow of mind and soul if he really wants to get the object to the bottom of the bowl. To get what is most important, he needs to drink the poison. So how is eternal life like the object in the bottom of the bowl of poison? It is insofar as we are sinful. 
Take our man in this Luke story, for example. When Jesus tells him that he's lacking one thing, that he tells him he needs to sell everything that he has and give to the poor and follow him, Jesus is only prescribing a poison from this man's point of view. From Jesus' point of view, which is the correct one, he is prescribing the remedy. This man's riches are actually this man's poison. He just doesn't know it. So from the man's perspective, Jesus is requiring the drinking of poison. He will have to die, or so it seems. Jesus might as well have told him to go and jump off of a bridge. What could be harder or more absurd than divesting oneself from everything that makes life better, easier, more pleasurable, more secure? If he does what Jesus says, he will lose everything he has. He needs to drink the poison to get the prize. Now that's one aspect of what is happening here. In the man's carnal state and his worldly thinking, the answer Jesus gives is simply too costly. But if we look closely, we see that the primary command is not sell everything. The primary command is let go of that stuff so you can grab a hold of me. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me is the command. Now, if we were to go back and remember, Jesus listed out a bunch of commandments for this man to keep, but he did not list the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. He listed out a bunch of other commandments. He left off the first one. Sell everything you have is not one of the Ten Commandments, but follow me is one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is not making a new commandment. Every person needs to sell everything they have and give it all away and live a life of poverty. What he is doing, he's putting his finger specifically, specifically and directly on this man's central issue, which he is trying to serve two gods, God and money. And the more important one to this man is money. And because of it, he cannot follow Jesus. Maybe it's better to say that he will not follow Jesus. So Jesus is trying to strip this man of his lesser gods that are keeping him from knowing the only God there is. Now that's the end of this man's story, but we don't know the end of his life. Hopefully his sorrow stripped him of himself, and later he encountered the resurrected Christ later in life. We don't know. But what we know is at this point in the story, the man leaves sad. He's truly a genuine seeker, but because the answer to his question is not the answer that he was hoping to hear, he walks away sad. Following Jesus at the expense of everything is just a poison that he can't stomach. So the Einstellung effect wins. He does what he has always done. He doesn't hear the warning of don't be blind from Jesus. Now, if that seems harsh, it's about to get worse before it gets better. The next verse gives us what could be confused as Jesus making a joke if it wasn't so terrifying. We'll put those words on the screen. Verses 24. Jesus picks the biggest, bumpiest, most awkward animal they probably knew of, which was a camel, and he says that has an easier time going through the eye of a needle, which is the size smaller than your pinky nail, than for a rich person to get into God's kingdom. In other words, it's not happening. Cows will fly over the moon before a rich person walks away from their money. Money is the most 
powerful and dangerous Einstellung effect there is. So does anyone blame this guy at this point from walking away? I certainly don't. If I had to get vulnerable with everybody in the room for a moment, I find this passage and this teaching of Jesus and Luke terrifying. Who has more money, this guy or me? Who knows? Who's better off and more comfortable, me in 2023 or him in 32? Only God knows. What would I do if God told me to do what he told this man to do? What would you do if Jesus told you to do what he told this man to do? Now, the other disciples are having a similar reaction, right? You can see the look of shock and terror when they ask, then who can be saved? If this guy, this guy who says he kept all the commandments, this guy who's rich and been blessed by God with his wealth, if he's not getting into the kingdom, how am I? How do I get in when it seems to me I'm worse? I have more sin. I have less ability. I have less blessings. This is their question. And what Jesus says next is pretty powerful. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we re-ask the central question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, in one sense, you can't do anything. God looks down from heaven on the children of man and to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who do good, who seek after God, and he sees that no one does good, not even one. No rich person walks away from their riches to follow God. No powerful person gives up their position of power to follow Jesus. No comfortable person chooses discomfort. No happily independent person gives up their autonomy to become a slave of God. It's not possible. Because people cannot save themselves. The grip, the hold, the allure of our sin programming has corrupted us, has so captivated us, has whispered way too many sweet nothings into our hearts that we have believed that none of us can or will walk away from the things that bind our affections. We all, like sheep, are under the Einstellung effect. We, like this man, when we are put to the test, all walk away sad. So we ask the question again, then who can be saved? And the answer is, anybody. Well, after what I just said, how can that be? Because God is able to save. What man cannot do, which is obey the law to inherit eternal life, God can do because eternal life is his. So Peter asks next, with with what seems to be quivering lips to me, in verse 28, he asks a question. He looks down at his dusty feet. He looks down at his earthen-toned robes, yuck. He looks at his friends who have no bag, who have left their homes, and he says, but then what are we doing? We left everything. Unlike this rich man who walked away, we've followed you. More than money, I gave you everything I have. I gave you myself. When it comes to Peter and those with him, when it comes to any of us today who have responded to the call and are living our lives to follow Jesus, 
God did the impossible. God did what they could not do. God did what we could not do, which is snap us from our conditioning. We call it being born again. God breaks through the world's Einstein effect, and he makes it so that we can see we are in a trap. Now, what's really crazy is after God does this, causes a person to be born again, the exchange is extremely lopsided. Jesus says that anybody who leaves this world's stuff behind for the sake of the kingdom of God gets more of what they had, and in the next life, more, and forever. People leave behind fake riches to get real riches. So we can see the contrast that Jesus is making. The rich man thinks that he is rich, and so he does not follow Jesus in order to keep what he perceives as his wealth. But what he is actually doing is investing his money and even his soul in FTX or Enron, if you like it. Whatever bad, famous financial investment you can think of by way of example. The rich man is making the worst financial decision anyone has ever made. He's making the worst joy decision he ever made. But the lowly and saved sinner who was born again and sees Jesus, and because of that sight, same difference. Let me see where we were. And because of that sight lives with all kinds of sacrifices of time and money and energy for the kingdom of God is investing their outcomes in a future that is better, more secure than anything the world can offer. And its outcome is eternal. This is the promise to those who follow and respond to the call of Jesus to follow him and inherit eternal life. Now we're coming to a close. It would have been great if we came to a close before the batteries ran out, but we didn't. We come to a close. The text itself is really the own, its own application. We could, just, we could all end right here. But what we want to do is apply this a little bit more deeply. So a couple of points to make. The first one is this, where the red fern grows. This is a book that is required reading, or I think was required reading at school at one point in time. Doesn't matter. My point is I have a point to make from this. The young boy in the book wants to hunt and kill raccoons. And if you haven't seen a raccoon in person and you're tempted to think that they're like cartoon versions of cats, it's not true. One walked by my house across the street during the day not that long ago, and it looked like a bear from the upside down. <laughs> so I can see why people would want to turn something like that into a hat. In any event, the boy tells his father what he wants to do, and the father, like all good dads, tells him how to kill the raccoon. This is what he tells him. He says, go find a tree with a hole in it and put a shiny object in the hole. And he tells him, then go back to the tree, and there will be a raccoon there, and, you know, you can... Well, the boy's confused doesn't really seem like that's a good trap since 
The raccoon could just run away. It's not actually stuck or trapped. But the father explains that the raccoons become so obsessed with the shiny object that once they grab a hold of it, even though someone walks right up to them to kill them, they won't let go. They rather die than let go of the object. It's a version of the Einstein effect. What are your shiny objects that are putting you in danger? What are the shiny objects that need to be let go of that you can't seem to let go of? Now, in our text today, one of the glaring ones for this man is his wealth. Jesus calls it out directly. And I've not really spent a lot of time on the money aspect of it specifically, but it's true. Money is dangerous, maybe the most dangerous. It is a shiny object for the raccoon. It is poison if, if relied upon for that which we are supposed to rely upon God for. So maybe there are some in here that need to hear that today. Jesus tells the man to follow him. One of the signs that would have showed off that he was actually following Jesus would have been a wild display of generosity. Maybe some of us do need to check our heart and see if we are following Jesus in this kind of way. So that would be an application for professing Christians in the room. But this morning, I am more so thinking of the person who, like the rich man, has a nagging haunt about this eternal life thing, but are not all in on following Jesus Christ. We have tried to build a church here that is sent to, has a mission field or mission front to the all-set Bostonian. The rich man in our story was all-set, but he had this nagging discontent in his soul. There was that constant hum in the background of his life that there was more, that God was real, that God has eternal life, and that a person should know a thing or two about that because what is the point of living for a hundred years or less and then losing your soul for eternity? So to anyone this morning who's listening and is in a position of really not following Jesus but this problem of eternal life continues to be thrown in your face, thrown in your mind. It's resonating in your soul. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the last point. And it's breaking Einstelung. The grip of the Einstelung effect in our lives needs to be broken. How do we heed the warning of don't be blind? which God gives us through his word, which tells us that he sent his son. How do we break Einstein? Well, the answer is longstanding, and there's no new message or program here. The way that we break the hold of the world and all its deceptions and grab a hold of God and put our faith in Christ is belief. It is belief. It is faith. It is belief that puts the spirit of God in the soul of man. It is impossible to grab a hold of the spirit of God. It is possible for God to give us the Holy Spirit that breathes faith into our soul. So assume we are the raccoon, we're stuck on the tree because we're holding on to the shiny object. 
even though what we really say we want is eternal life. We can't seem to let go of that money, that pleasure, that anger, that hurt, that relationship, that independence, that image, that addiction, whatever it is. Those things are food of disbelief in our lives. The reason the rich man walks away sad is he does not believe that following Jesus is better than his wealth. It was a belief issue. And it is the same with us this morning. But if we're listening to the word of God, or you're listening to the word of God, and you find that you are starting to believe, then you'll find that you're on this path of eternal life. And the only thing, or the only advice, that a Christian could give you at that point is go all in and grab a hold of the joy.